are you? Not, not great? <laughs> okay, so I was going to tell you what week we were on in our series, but I honestly don't know. We are in the dead of summer, and we are in our summer series called Travels with Jesus, and we are following Jesus <clears throat> literally early on in his ministry as he travels from place to place is all kind of being shaped through the lectionary so we're following the gospel lectionary every week and this year as year C and so we're in the gospel of Luke and I think the gospel of Luke does a really good job of documenting Jesus's wild rise to fame it's crazy if you we're in chapter 10 this week but if you go from 1 to 10 and read it all at one time you can see how well-known he becomes so quickly and so exponentially. And because of this, when I read it, I always think he could have been in. Like he was really bright, really smart, young, had a following really fast. He could have been on the in circle with all of the religious leaders. And when we read the story, we can kind of see that potential at the very beginning And it reminds me, of course, of that scene in Harry Potter, (laughs) obviously. Um, And also, if you haven't read or watched Harry Potter, please do that, because I'm going to refer to that movie or book for the end of, like, until the end of time. I'm never going to stop referring to it. Yeah. So this reminds me, though, of that scene. This is the first Harry Potter movie. Harry's just a little kid. He's going off to school, to Hogwarts. Everybody knows who he is, but he he doesn't know when to know that world. And so he gets to school, and he meets, you know, kids his age, and he meets Malfoy. And if you don't know the story, Malfoy is like the other kid in his class who's enemy, <laughs> becomes his enemy. And Malfoy sort of estab- uh, represents the establishment because he's well-known, his family's wealthy, he's pure blood, and he kind of knows the ropes, and he sort of has a lot of power. And so when Malfoy and Harry really kind of officially meet for the first time, Malfoy extends a hand to him in solidarity to shake his hand and kind of basically tell him, let me show you how things work around here. And in that moment, Harry could have shaken his hand and had things really easy for him. But instead, He goes his own way, he carves his own path, and in doing so, he offends and makes an enemy out of Malfoy for the whole rest of the series. Now, I honestly thought of this when I reread the story of Jesus as told in Luke this week, and uh, just the way that he rejected the leader's way, because in the beginning, you can see he's teaching in the synagogues, he's there, he's around them, and he could have chosen to be in but instead he chooses his own way they're deeply offended to the point where they literally try to run him off a cliff like right off the bat (laughs) like I think it's in chapter four he's in his hometown it's where he says prophets are never welcome in their own home they they get so mad at his radical message and he just sort of shrugs it off walks right through the crowd and on his way to his travels that we see in this series that we're going through and so off he goes 
picking up outcasts along the way, healing people who weren't supposed to be worth healing, including women in his ministry. And even now when I read it in its entirety, like I did this week, chapters 1 through 10 specifically, my hairs stand on edge. I got goosebumps reading it because it really is so radical what he chose to do. And the thing is, is it worked. The people are drawn to him, his message grows, and he has to expand. So he chooses the 12. But then in chapter 10, that's where we are today, and we've been in chapter 10 for three weeks. In chapter 10, his fame and his ministry keep growing to the point where he can't go anywhere. Now I'm going to like imagine a boy band in my mind. He can't go anywhere without a crowd following him, looking for him. Everywhere they turn, there are crowds everywhere seeking healing from him, seeking a word from him. And so he expands again. And we saw this three weeks ago when he sent out 70-ish more people ahead of him tasked with prophetic work. And within this same chapter, chapter 10, in which Jesus is providing direction to these little prophets on what to do, on what they're tasked to do, we also find two stories that help his followers both then and now in thinking about priorities. So last week we covered the first one of those two stories, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I invite you to go to our podcast and and listen to that if you haven't. And today we have the account of Mary and Martha. Both of these stories emphasize a rethinking of our priorities. Both highlight the undeniable truth that the ways of Jesus, his priorities, are often unexpected and unconventional, and we have to be in his proximity to really understand how to prioritize ourselves. So it's really important that before all these prophets are sent out, before we go and immerse ourselves in prophetic activity, that we get our priorities in order. It's like Jesus is saying in this chapter, let me teach you how to prioritize so that I can teach you how to pray. So that's chapter 11, Fran's preaching next week, and Jesus does, teaches how to pray, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Prioritize accordingly, learn to pray, to be in community with God, and then by doing so, become equipped to go about the business of profit work. So all of this we keep in mind as we approach today's reading, which is yet another example of Luke's distinctly inclusive gospel as we see this intimate teaching moment with Martha and her sister Mary. Now, I've actually never preached on this story, and last week I preached also on Good Samaritan. I've never preached on either one of those in in the, I don't know, eight years that I've been preaching. Every time it would come around in the lectionary, I would choose the Old Testament reading because I was like, oh, people preach on that all the time. And let me go to the Old Testament. No one ever preaches out of the Old Testament. And so I would just avoid these stories. Um, And the other reason I think I would avoid it is because it always felt like it was the same interpretation, especially with Martha and Mary, that it just sort of 
put demonized Martha and made her out to be a bad guy, even though like a lot of us can identify with Martha and Mary. It's not either or. And so when I came before this, I was just determined to make sure Martha wasn't the bad guy. <laughs> and I don't think she's the bad guy in the story. I don't think there's a bad guy in this story. Martha is not speaking untruth when she speaks to Jesus. She is speaking true things. What she is saying is true. She is following the rules of the day, okay? So she's following the rules of hospitality. We think about hospitality now, and whenever I have people over, I always am like running around with like a chicken with my head cut off and all of that, but it's not the same thing as in this story. The rules of hospitality in ancient Judaism were very, very important and very political. And when a stranger came to your door, when a pilgrim in when pilgrims came to your door, you followed the rules of ancient Jew Jewish hospitality. And they were complex, and they were thorough, and if you did not follow them, it could be bad for you. There would be ramifications. So Martha's following the rules here of hospitality, and she's following the norms as the head of house. So some of us who grew up reading these stories know that Lazarus, Lazarus isn't mentioned in this story. It kind of applies he's not there. Martha is acting as head of the house in her role in this story. And so she's following the rules as the head of house. And she's following the assumptions of gender roles of the time. So she's assuming Mary isn't needed in there with all those men. She's, she, Mary's supposed to be with her. She's, Martha is following the rules, right? She's following tradition. So I don't think that Jesus gets on to Martha I think that the way he speaks to her, he says her name twice. I think that he has grace for her, but I don't think he's getting on to her. I actually think that Jesus is empowering her here. He's giving her permission. He's doing the radical thing he does, and he's including her. See, it was extremely unusual for rabbis at this time to teach women. And Mary was sitting at his feet being taught so Martha knew that in her mind, according to tradition, it shouldn't matter if Mary is there or not. Martha is speaking truth. Again, truth according to tradition. And it was time for this truth to be reevaluated. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You have permission to come learn. You have permission. You are empowered. You, Martha, just like Mary, have access to God things. This is huge. This is a huge in scripture. It tells us that we are also allowed to directly learn from God, to hear from God ourselves, to interpret ourselves. This is a huge deal. You know, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, but I just don't think it's actually practiced all the time. Um, for me, this is an important reminder because I went, like many in here, in, in an evangelical kind of culture and context from indoctrination in which I was told what to believe, told the checklist for salvation and heaven and all of that, and told how I should interpret scripture, and there's only one way, right? I went from that kind of indoctrination to four years of intellectualizing my faith in seminary. So then I got to the point where I, I didn't want to do 
devotional readings of scripture because I was like, oh, do I have the dates wrong? Do I not actually know the proper context? And I couldn't write sermons without reading several commentaries because I have to follow the commentaries. I mean, my voice doesn't know all of that background stuff. And, and so I went to the, from the indoctrination to intellectualizing, and I know a lot of people in here can relate. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, Everything we do here is to try and get us from a non-dualistic way of thinking. It's not both and. There's a place for structure as we teach our kids about faith. There's a place for being thoughtful when we do our sermons and making sure that we have facts straight. But I'm trying to trade all of that stuff in for a healthy foundational dose of mysticism. That's what I think the foundation is about in this story this mysterious element of you and God and your relationship mattering. Your instinct, the spirit of God living in you, having value, your oneness with God, and what you understand about God holding truth. Jesus is saying in this story, you are allowed to do that. Right doctrine, it, it might be some kind of a priority, but it's not the priority. This inclusion in this story is so powerful, and it's not just powerful for women. How many people have heard this just taught for women over the years? Is this, oh, there's women in the story. Must be a, this must be a teaching moment for women. No, this teaching moment is powerful for all of us because through this experience and the story of the Good Samaritan, they come in a package deal in this chapter. Jesus is prepping us to prioritize our lives and hearts in a way that might be counterintuitive to tradition, to societal norms, to the law, meaning to our orthodoxy. He's saying, my ways are actually different from all that. Like, come sit at my feet and learn about it. Learn my ways. Learn how to prioritize. Learn how to be a prophet. I think Jesus is saying, learn how to be a prophet by first becoming a mystic. Yes. Now, I talk about prophet work a lot. That's our whole message here, by the way. The way I define prophet is this, a person who tells the truth. So hopefully, we are all doing some prophet work. Um, So, you know, here, when we talk about societal structures being broken or being flawed in their design, when we talk about injustice, when we talk about resistance, when we try and make active change in this world, we are doing profit work. We are telling the truth. But how can we tell the truth? How can we know the truth, live it, walk it, if we don't hear it for ourselves? If all we trust is what other people said, if all we use to shape our faith is doctrine and rules and interpretations, if we outsource all the time, that's what Fran likes to say, if we outsource our faith all the time instead of doing the work ourselves, it will not be sustainable. It will not be enough. We have to sit at the feet of Jesus ourselves. We have to make room for that mysterious oneness we will discover when we, when we go to that place with God. Now, let me define mysticism for you because I know that's an off-putting word for a lot of people or you just don't know what it means. I'm going to, of course, use Richard Rohr's definition. 
by the way, sign up for his weekly, daily meditations because they come straight to your inbox. And he talked about mysticism this week, and I had already started writing the sermon, so basically he copied me. But just kidding. <laughs> we are on the same wavelength, he, he and I. He says, a mystic is simply one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to actual inner experience of God. See, it's not so scary. Christianity, mystery in Christianity involves the hidden things of God made manifest or revealed in the hearts and minds and spirituality of those who love God and follow Christ. See, I can get on board with being a mystic because, yeah, that tells me that, that I'm learning some stuff myself. I'm experiencing God myself. Now, we know that there is so much prophetic work to be done right now, right? I mean, we've been talking about the border every week. There's a resource list out there if you need ways to respond. There is so much prophetic work to be done, and it's urgent, but we have to connect to our source first so that we can learn the hidden things of God for ourselves, so that we can learn how to embody love so that we can do that prophet work in the world. See, I think that the instinct of both Mary and Martha live within us, and I think they're both awesome instincts. They're both good. Martha, in this story, is acting as the head of the household. Her name literally translates from Aramaic to Lord, the feminine version of Lord. Martha is the leader in this story, and she's honestly getting stuff done, okay? So I love Martha. Jesus teaching Mary, mystic teaching mystic, prophetic work. The prophetic work that I think Martha was doing in all her truth-telling is not sustainable without the mystic work. One of the reasons why we have to connect to our source, connect to God, one of the reasons why it's so important is because it is our filter and our measure for whether or not our truth-telling, our prophet work, is motivated by the embodiment of love or by fear and anxiety and anger and reacting. This is the important thing to note about Martha and her truth-telling. In this instance, her motivation for speaking truth was motivated by anxiety, fear that she was going to break the rules, that she was going to go against tradition, that she was going to offend somebody. But when we draw near, when we sit at the feet of Christ, that God mystery, we are guaranteed to be restored we are guaranteed to get filled somehow. We will know connection with God, and we will be healed. Now, I talked about Martha's meaning of her name. Mar Do you know what Mary's name means in this text? It's a variant of Miriam. In Hebrew, it means bitter. <laughs> How ironic that the one whose name means bitter was the one seeking healing. That unlikely step to healing went against traditions and against norms and against expectations. Mary put herself at the feet of Jesus. She tethered herself directly to Jesus, and she got herself healed in the process. 
We are allowed to do the same. We are allowed to directly learn from God that mystical element, you and God, your instinct, your oneness, your understanding matters. Jesus is saying you're allowed. And not only are you allowed, he's saying, I think you should make it your priority. Because when sitting at Jesus' feet becomes we see more clearly, we understand more deeply how to prioritize the rest of our lives as well. So that, there's always a so that, so that we are equipped and capable of that ultimate prophetic work, which is unconditional love of neighbor, no exceptions. Remember, a neighbor is anybody in need of mercy. These stories all go together. So this is my prayer, and it's really simple. God, may we prioritize accordingly, and may that prioritizing begin at your feet. Amen.